Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. What's up? A lot of things. What's up with you? Yesterday was my birthday. Happy birthday. That's right. I texted you yesterday. I texted you over the weekend for your birthday weekend. And then I saw on Facebook that yesterday was your actual birthday. Nobody wants to celebrate their birthday on a Wednesday, which I really didn't. I celebrated by only having one meeting, which lasted 25 minutes. And then I managed to work on three different manuscripts throughout the day. And that was honestly the best gift I could give myself. And it's also the sad state of affairs of that's how I spend my birthday. But, Mm -hmm. you know. I also just spend my birthday feeling pitifully sorry for myself because I'm one of those people. I want to be celebrated, but I don't want to have to do the work because I feel like I do the work to like make things happen all year long. And on my birthday, I want things to just happen. I am the exact same way because I'm the person who does all the planning for everybody else's birthdays and I'll surprise people with shit. And for the first time in a very long time, Aaron did that for me. And I came home on uh, the Friday to a garage filled with balloons and any number of like wonderful, amazing decorations that really made it the perfect start to the birthday weekend. So we should talk about who who is down the hall for me and who we're going to be talking to today. I'll go ahead since I was just talking to her. Uh, Dr. Holly Haran is an assistant professor of anthropology in my department here at the University of Alabama. And she is also a birth uh, and postpartum birth uh, doula. And her research, uh, not surprisingly, focuses on maternal health and birth outcomes. And she's done that research in Puerto Rico. We're going to be talking to her today about a paper that came out in American Journal of Human Biology earlier this year based on her dissertation work called Maternal Hair Cortisol Concentrations Across Pregnancy and the Early Postpartum Period in a Puerto Rican Sample. So, I know she does a lot of really cool things, uh, a lot of broad-based work and community-engaged work, which I think is really awesome. And so I'm quite excited to hear about what we can learn about how stress changes throughout the course and very near after a pregnancy. And then, hell, how the hell a hurricane impacts that, which, yeah. you know, that that should have a story or two involved. In addition to hearing about this work, the work she's doing in Alabama around reproductive health and doula work is really cool and interesting, especially since being a midwife or a doula was normal here in Alabama until the 80s. The 80s it had the longest... I think continual history. And then it was one of the last dates where they actually outlawed midwifery. Hmm. And and then they recently finally got it back in again. The backstory is basically some males who had licenses to be medical doctors and had proprietary tools, e.g. a um, speculum, wanted to have proprietary use over their tools and their degrees in hospitals So by outlawing midwives, they force pregnant women into hospitals where they can be subjected to their nice cold metal tools. Business of Being Born is a great movie on that for anybody who's interested in that. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you so much for taking the time and having the patience with really annoyingly slow internet. Uh, We really do appreciate you coming on the show today. And we kind of start every podcast the same way, and that's getting to know a little bit more about you to kind of tell us your origin story of how you got into anthropology and then, of course, how you wanted to or why you wanted to study motherhood and pregnancy. Goodness, how did I get started in anthropology? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I landed on anthropology because 
of really the pathway that I was interested in taking in college. So I began my college career very much as a traditional student, so an 18-year-old, um, going to the University of Iowa. And like most undergrads, I was like, well, I'm going to be pre-med. I'm interested in health. And I am interested in health, obviously, still to this day in my professional career. But, you know, I was I was working three jobs. I was not really in a place in my life where a pre-medical career was really viable, um, especially at the time. I think programs have changed and work-study options have changed, you know, since 2004. But in addition to that, sort of having a schedule that wasn't conducive to a traditional college student lifestyle, I also felt that pre-medical education was very hollow. Um, it was extremely hollow. You know, I, I was taking these math and these science classes that are intellectually stimulating, but they really felt a human in a lot of ways. Even my classes like kinesiology, we were learning about function, but we weren't learning about what it meant to be human. And of course, growing up, I had never heard of anthropology at all, not even in high school. And so I had to take a human origins class and I took it in my, actually the middle of my junior year. So a little bit late with Dr. Nathan Holton, who's at the university of, I believe he's still at the university of Iowa and was a grad student at the time. And that class started answering a lot of questions and started piquing my interest in terms of the the how and the why and the what more so than just understanding humans from a very sort of a emotional and a human perspective in my opinion and so at that point i shifted gears from being a pre-med major to becoming an anthropology major and i was involved working in um, dr robert franciscus bioanth lab I'm at the University of Iowa, and that's where I spent the remaining of my time at that university. And toward the end, I had the opportunity to take an evolutionary anatomy class where we spent one day in the cadaver lab over at the med school. And then we got to spend one day learning about anatomy from an evolutionary perspective. And that class really inspired me to think a lot more about the interconnectedness of health as well as physiology. So the reason I talk about that and then I'm going to bring up this story is because how I got interested in motherhood and pregnancy is more of a personal story than it is an academic pursuit. And then I'll go on to talk about sort of the rest of my pathway in anthropology. So my personal interest in pregnancy and health came from lived experience. So my mom is a Puerto Rican woman. She's a woman of color. She spent the majority of her adult years in the U.S., so in Iowa, where there at the time there was definitely a dearth of Puerto Rican people and people of color in the area that we were growing up in. And she's a physiologically healthy woman, and she had my sister and I term, and then my brothers, I have three brothers, and all of them were progressively more preterm. And the University of Iowa Hospital, interestingly enough, where I got my anthro degree, but also where she gave birth to my brothers because they were preterm, they asked if she would get pregnant again after my last brother was born so they could study her to figure out why she was having preterm babies because they couldn't clinically explain it. And that always stuck with me. It stuck very, very close to home. I was like, first of all, for the ethical reasons, right, in terms of asking someone to get pregnant again after having such high-risk pregnancies, but then also wondering, what it, what is it about your lived experience um, that may have shaped these outcomes? And when I talked to her, she's like, I don't know what was wrong with my body. She's like, I just know it was really, really hard for me. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about what that means from an emotional perspective. So having that lived experience, learning what I had learned, being both a pre-med major for a while and then transitioning over to anthropology, I knew that I had an interest in studying the relationship between pregnancy and health outcomes. And that was sort of 
not as formulated at the time and when I went to my master's program. So I was like, well, I'm interested in thinking about sort of like fetal origins of health and disease. And that was just my general orientation. And in my master's program, I went straight away after my undergrad um, to the University of Montana in Missoula, strangely enough. And I wanted to go there because I was really interested in programs that had an applied edge to them. And there weren't as many in 2008 as there are now. And at that program, I got a lot of public health experience, a lot of experience working with other historically underrepresented populations like individuals from Native American and First Nation communities. And I was able to do a lot of work with a local nonprofit called Women's Voices for the Earth, which was looking at the relationship between environmental tragedies and poor birth outcomes. And one of the things that I learned in that master's program is that turns out if you don't know a lot about the academy, it's really hard to maximize your time somewhere. (laughs) I'm in a master's program and I had plans to go to Puerto Rico and to explore the relationship between early onset of puberty or what we call precocious puberty and premature thalarchy, which is the premature development of breast buds and what people thought about its relationship to potential environmental tragedies, sort of what was their explanatory model for these type of outcomes because It's an epidemic in Puerto Rico and has been since the late 90s. And I wrote my advisor an email um, in May when they told me to. And then I didn't hear from them again until August. And so that was my opportunity to go do fieldwork that came and went. And now knowing what I know, I would have been much more effective in terms of navigating that system. But I wasn't at the time and I didn't know. So I ended up writing this beautiful, like almost 200 page paper on sort of the theoretical understanding of not only looking at this as a physiologic outcome, but also the relationship it has to Puerto Rico as being a colonized nation and capitalist development over the island in the last hundred years. And so I was like, well, I probably don't have a shot in hell in terms of going to a PhD program, (laughs) even though my program valued me at the time. And I went from being somebody who was unfunded um, because, you know, my outcomes as an undergrad working three jobs, they're not as impressive as one might want on paper, Um, but they ended up funding me in my second year. And I met a woman in the GTA lab who said to me, she's like, you know, you have a lot of interests as my undergrad advisor did. And this was, we're talking about Melissa Cheney, who is a medical anthropologist and home birth midwife at Oregon State University. So I reached out to Missy. We talked, we met a couple of times and, and the rest is history in terms of thinking about getting a PhD because she said, I want you to come work with me. And so in 2012, I I packed my bags after finishing my master's and went over to get my PhD at Oregon State. And what's interesting about that experience is that I went in thinking I was going to study environmental teratogens and then, you know, doing more work in biocultural theory and biocultural anthropology in that program. Even though it's an applied program, they have a number of biocultural anthropologists working there. And I said, you know, I think maybe I want to transition to stress and thinking about stress and cortisol. And so that is where that journey began because it still gave me the opportunity to stay connected to thinking about the relationship between health and pregnancy and outcomes. But I also had the opportunity to work with something that was a little bit more measurable than some of the environmental teratogens that I was interested in and was something that became more of an interest for me than environmental teratogens at the time. And that's a long-winded story about my journey to anthropology. Um, And here I am today. Basically, what you're saying is like you've got a lot of different chops in a lot of different directions, and you have an interesting set of research interests in a research program. One of the other pieces of it that we noted and we we're talking about before you got on is that you're also a doula, right? And it's inherently interesting, but it's also interesting because we've actually interviewed a bunch of people who are anthropologists and doulas, but not all of them study reproductive health. Some of them are paleoanthropologists, for example. So 
what came first and how does being a doula influence your research? Like how do they mesh together or not? Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like the interest in maternal stress and doula care sort of coincided. It co-occurred. I did not know what a doula was until I went to my PhD program, but I was talking with my advisor one day, like I said, who is a home birth midwife. So she's a clinician who provides care in the community setting. And I said to her, I think I want to study stress. I really care about stress that women experience in pregnancy. We kind of have a black box around what it is. We see it more as a variable than an outcome. These are all things that I care about. And I was like, and I also want to know what we can do that's low tech, high touch and personal that can help people. And she's like, well, have you ever heard of a doula? And I was just like, you know, my original reaction was what many people think um, is like, what's that? And she told me about how they're non-clinical professionals who are trained to provide resources, education, and support in the perinatal period. So pregnancy, intrapartum during labor and birth, and in the postpartum period. And I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah, that sounds awesome, you know? And so conveniently, a month after we had that conversation, the local birth center in Corvallis, Oregon, which is where Oregon State is, was funded to start a program to train people who are bilingual to provide doula services. So my mother is Puerto Rican, like I said earlier, so and I'm bilingual, so that I was able to take that training for free. And so I was trained using Dona International, which is one of the internationally accredited organizations for doula training, which means doulas of North America. And then I also received postpartum training and I started serving families right away in Corvallis. And what's cool is I was able to serve families as well when I did my dissertation field work later in Puerto Rico. And so even though those things co-occurred at the same time in terms of interests, I haven't thought about how they could intersect professionally until very recently. And I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so they kind of existed in parallel to each other throughout my doctoral training. And they informed each other, but they never overlapped. So when it came to working with moms as a doula, it really helped me write my proposal, think about this idea of maternal stress, the way it manifests both you know, pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy, and in the aftermath. And also, it made me think methodologically about what would be valuable in terms of understanding maternal stress, particularly from the perceived perspective. So they informed each other, but they kind of have existed in parallel until very recently. And we know that a lot more literature has come out on the impact of doula care recently or female-supported care during pregnancy. And there's hormonal implications for that, right? There's been some wonderful thesis work and, and publications that have come out recently supporting that. So they informed one another, but they never intersected. That's very cool. Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting because you know, one would think that there was somehow one was intentional or built off of the other, but that's just a neat story. And it's often very interesting how those parallel interests end up, I mean, in some way informing the other and, you know, eventually we actually incorporate it into our work. So that's pretty neat. So as uh, we said in the introduction, you have a new paper out in AJHB titled Maternal Hair Cortisol Concentrations Across Pregnancy and the Early Postpartum Period in a Puerto Rican Sample, where you looked at hair cortisol samples mm -hmm. across pregnancy and into the postpartum period. And so what inspired this work? I mean, did this inspiration come from, say, you know, the experience with your mother? And then maybe even more importantly, what can or do we really need to learn? Like what sort of important health information can we get 
trying to understand how stress and cortisol levels change throughout a pregnancy. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's personal motivation to the work, but in terms of collecting hair cortisol specifically, I wanted a long-term biomarker or as long-term as we can get in terms of understanding a measure of human stress that is, or the physiologic experience of human stress that can tell us more than just what's happening in the moment. And that isn't expensive to store (laughs) in the field, right? It had both a practical element to it as well as it captured more of what I was interested in, especially in terms of understanding the relationship between chronic stress, allostatic load, weathering, and outcomes, right? And we know there's a lot of literature right now talking about allostatic load or our body's sort of the overdrive of chronic stress and what that can do on maternal hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis function and when the implications that can have for birth outcomes. So that's how a hair cortisol sort of came into the picture because after I had done this extensive literature review from my doctoral program and really thought about what are the gaps in the research, I really saw a gap between not only triangulating measures in terms of having perceived structured surveys in hair cortisol, but that there wasn't a lot of data on hair cortisol in pregnancy that was really useful for understanding not only what's happening during pregnancy, but also that level of variation. And so that was the inspiration. It's both personal and then what I found existed in the research at the time when I was pursuing this work. And then what do I think we need to know? That's the follow-up question, right, in terms of hair cortisol, maternal cortisol during pregnancy. And so as we state in this paper, what we really need to know is how it works in general. Right? And so call me boring for producing a descriptive paper, but one of the things that I feel like has happened in hair cortisol research is that we've jumped the gun. We've really jumped the gun in terms of being able to assess what is happening in the body and how what is happening in the body is meaningful for understanding health outcomes. In my dream world, which this may sound so lame to some people, there would just be this large ongoing longitudinal study looking at these different measures of stress and these different biomarkers over time in a larger sample in different specialized populations. So we have some baseline understanding of what is happening. And that was the original goal of the research is to have more of a baseline. And as we know with research, and hence the name of this podcast, things don't always go according to plan and it's a little bit messy. (laughs) So I really feel like we need to have more of a baseline of just understanding the physiology of cortisol across pregnancy. One of the things I really like about this paper, one, it's that you did it and that you got it published, meaning you wrote a descriptive paper of a biomarker And you didn't panic and think, I got to have a hypothesis to test and a p-value in here for this to be science, right? And this happens all the time, including in my own research. We jump past the description to hypothesis testing when we really don't know if we understand the physiology that we're measuring all that well, right? And again, I'm super guilty of that. So I applaud this. That's often something that reviewers impose upon us too, that like, make sure you put in the, you know, these important p-values and hypotheses and whatnot. And so we often get constrained into it. I want to just take a second and tell our listeners what I'm looking at. I'm looking at your paper, right? So you have box plots for hair cortisol measures. So trimester one, two, three, and postpartum. And then you have a figure... Uh, to show the variation. And what it, it shows is, well, you see a pattern in the first one, but if you look at the intra-participant variation, there's lots of it. And then when you parse out the fact that we had a hurricane and some people did not finish all four, you have a different subset for all four measures, you see different patterns. So I wonder if you can interpret a little bit of what the patterns are suggesting. 
That is a really good question. So there's a couple of things that we have thought about in terms of looking at this data. So the first thing to think about, especially within intra-subject variation, right, is we see, you know, the standard sort of expectation in terms of cortisol function during pregnancy is that it slowly rises in the first and second trimester, peaks in the third trimester as you get close to parturition or birth, and then it goes down a little bit after birth, but it doesn't go back to pre-pregnancy levels for many, many weeks and potentially months. So we have a general sense that that pattern exists and that we see that in the table that shows all the data points for the people who are able to complete all four visits, which is a very small number of them, unfortunately. But when we look at the intrasubject variation for those 29 participants, we see, you know, there's definitely a following of that trend for a portion of them. But then we have folks who really had very stable and low cortisol levels. We see people who had very low cortisol levels at the beginning of their pregnancy, spike in elevated cortisol levels in their second trimester, and then actually a decrease in the third trimester. And then we see folks who may have had a higher first trimester rating and then lower second and third. And so there's a number of things to think about. And I think one of the most important things is in terms of time. So if I'm recruiting a mom in a study and I recruit her at six or seven weeks of pregnancy and then I don't see her again in the second trimester until 27 weeks, right, that that's significant. So there could have been a big change there. And then maybe there is a smaller change in the levels in the third trimester. There could also be a number of other things as well in terms of clinical conditions. We collected a lot of data on the hair cortisol sample itself, but we didn't collect anything about medications. We didn't collect anything about other sort of pre-existing conditions that might have been associated with elevated level of cortisol at some point during pregnancy. But we also have to think about the role of the, the placenta in all of this right? And where they were at in terms of placental development. So the placenta is also responsible for the increasing levels of cortisol in pregnancy. And perhaps we were collecting data for certain participants at a time point where they had a really elevated level of cortisol in their system, or maybe didn't have an elevated level of cortisol in their system yet because the placenta wasn't creating its own corticotropin-releasing hormone response that would lead to cortisol production. So those are a few things that we're thinking about in terms of the variation, as well as, like I said before, we don't have a baseline for what normal is. Maybe that range of normal is a lot bigger than we realize in terms of cortisol production as well. And with without that baseline, it's really hard to assess. I mean, we would need thousands and thousands of participants really to be able to successfully establish ranges of normal for those time points. So there's a lot of different factors at play. It just occurred to me that you have now written, even though you don't have thousands and thousands, but you do have actually a paper, you have written a paper that everyone can now sample when they say, yes, we are going to include pregnant women in our survey because we now know how pregnancy affects cortisol. We all exclude pregnant women from our biomarker studies because we can't appropriately analyze their cortisol. So kudos to you. And that's kind of upsetting because even though, you know, pregnancy obviously produces a different level of cortisol production, diurnal rhythms are still the same generally for what we see in non-pregnant populations. And there's still an overarching trend from what we know that is as relatively reliable. So we just don't know the extent to which those ranges of normal for each trimester we don't know what those are. So speaking of very stressful events, you all encountered one while you were there. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit of what it was like of having a hurricane, you know, run through your field site. And not only, you know, with the research itself, but just personally experiencing that while trying to do research. So 
Another personal little tidbit here is that the last time a Category 4 or 5 hurricane hit Puerto Rico was the same year my grandmother was born on the island in 1928. She is still alive, and she called me right before the hurricane came, and she said, isn't this special that we're sharing this experience together? And I was like, all right, Grandma. Um <laughs> You know, that is definitely one way to, to talk about this. But she was like, the last time it happened was when I was born on a mud floor in a hut, you know, in Cabo Rojo or whatever. So interesting that I would share that experience with my maternal grandmother, right? And so we were there during Hurricane Maria, which happened on September 20th, 2017. And that came two weeks after Hurricane Irma, which was not nearly as impactful for Puerto Rico in terms of infrastructure, but it was impactful in terms of the availability of supplies to prepare for another large storm. So between those two weeks when those two storms happened, we did not have any more shipments coming to Puerto Rico. We didn't have the shelves restocked after everybody prepared for Irma. And so that created a whole new level of, of chaos and basically hysteria in, try, in terms of trying to prepare. And my advisor called me a few days before the storm and said, do you want to leave? And, you know, maybe if I didn't have a personal connection to the island, I would have been like, yeah, get me the heck out of here. But I said, I feel like I'm abandoning my participants. I feel like I'm abandoning the people that I've been building relationships with for the last year. And, you know, maybe it won't be that bad. You know, I was just trying to stay optimistic. And so to be clear at the time, I also had my partner and my daughter who was 20 months old with me and we lived right next to the ocean. So we had to go about 40 minutes inland. And it's kind of a crazy story about how we got to our safe place. So I feel like I can't not tell it. <laughs> And it's maybe a testament to me as a researcher. So I knew this storm was coming and I knew it was going to impact data collection. So I was texting with some of my mothers who had visits and I said, would you be open to visiting with me before the storm comes? And a lot of them were like, sure. You know, like, I mean, we can't stop it. It's coming for us, but come see me. So my family and I got in our really old crappy Subaru with like every single thing that we cared about packed in it. And our car was falling apart and we drove to a town called Naranjito, which is like little orange, right? Naranjito. And I met this mom at a Burger King, right? And it was up in the mountains and our car was full of stuff. And I met with her, I collected her hair sample and she was sharing with me how, you know, she's like, I know my house isn't going to survive this storm. She's like, I live in a wood house. She's like, it's not going to survive. And so we talked about, you know, what, what her plan was afterwards and that she was going to go live with her family. And even though this is happening and she knows she's about to lose something that she owns and cares deeply about, she seems incredibly calm, right? So there's a lot about thinking about sort of accepting the way of life, right? I mean, when I talk with my participants, we talk about that a lot. Like sometimes you don't stress about the things you can't control. And on the way back, we were coming down the mountains into the place where we were staying. And the rain started coming, right? The rain before the storm, the big storm came. And our car started dying about two miles away from where we were going to stay to be safe. And so my husband couldn't stop the car when he was driving. There was these huge lines of traffic. Everyone was trying to escape the coast. And we just had to drive on the side of the road and in the grass all the way to get to where we were going to stay. Otherwise, our car was going to die. <laughs> And he just looked at me and he was like, you really had to do that last visit, huh? And I was like, yeah, thank you. Love you guys, you know. <laughs> and we made it there and our car literally died in the driveway. And so, you know, you have to wonder what happened to my family's stress levels at that time, speaking of stress. And then when the storm came, it was significant. We stayed in a place and I could look out the window from the distance in the bathroom. We were in the bathroom in the place we were staying for about 12 hours. And I describe it like being in a tornado. And when you looked out the window, you could just see like these 50, 60, 70 year old mango trees were like just flapping in the wind, like tiny little twigs. It was really unbelievable. And I felt my mind go blank. 
you know, I, I just kind of went blank. I just had to be in it and to just think about getting out on the other side of it. And then the roof fell off of the place we were in. It was a, it was quite a mess. And then after the storm calmed, there was destruction everywhere, right? There's trees everywhere. There was like washing machines in the road, like just there was complete chaos. And what's interesting is we didn't see a government official or a, anything like that for days. We didn't see anybody for days. It was all community effort cleanup. So my husband had a handsaw in the back of the car and we were cutting down mango trees and just trying to get things off the road. I just put my daughter on my back and we were like trying to get water and flooding out of people's houses and just helping. It was a real community effort. But the whole time I was experiencing that, I was thinking about my participants. I was thinking about the ones that were pregnant the ones that were due around that time. And I, in fact, had three moms who gave birth in the storm. Like they had to get in their cars and drive from these mountain towns to the hospital. And their stories are absolutely amazing in terms of the, the, (laughs) the, the journey, as well as what it was like to just, you know, try to focus on what you were doing to get through it. Yeah. Anecdotally, I have heard there's something about storms, like almost inducing labor. Is, and so when you say you had three moms go into labor during the storm, any comment on that? Is it just the stress of the situation kind of speeds things along? It's possible, right? It's possible. So stress can do a couple of things during labor. It, depending on how much you have, it could potentially cause you to go into labor or it can actually limit the progress of labor. It really depends on the type of stress you're experiencing and and your physiology. But I think for these moms, I know at least one of them said, I was trying to fight it. I was trying to fight it. And I think that stress of trying to deny it (laughs) probably, you know, I don't know. Well, we'd, we'd have to do more thorough investigation, but I'm sure that didn't help trying to stall things. And also, you know, at that point, even if you weren't in active labor, you probably wanted to start that journey to the hospital because you don't know how long it's going to take you. There's all over the road. There's mudslides and all kinds of things happening. I mean, a lot of these families were coming from mountain areas to go to these clinics in, in the urban setting. So yes, it's possible. I also had a client who gave birth at the same time as the lunar eclipse that year. So it was just kind of a, the, our environment makes a really big difference on birth outcomes for sure. So will that child never become a werewolf or are they destined to become a werewolf? <laughs> This is a clearly an important Nothing. question. <laughs> now, what I was going to ask about is, is of course, since I just saw the prequel to the defense of one of your students, Emily Locke, who looked at the relationship between birth outcomes and natural disasters. And, and that's something I had never considered there being a, a synergistic epidemic of, right? And she used endemics theory to frame the study. Did that idea come out of your experience? It was it was partially informed by that, but not not exclusively. So when she said, I'm interested in breastfeeding, I said, okay, great. And then she's like, I'm interested in thinking about how the environment impacts breastfeeding. And I said, okay, great. And I have a colleague at Tulane who are working on a resubmission, probably our third or fourth resubmission of an R01 right now, looking at the impact of multiple disasters on birth outcomes and maternal infant health outcomes. So my colleague at Tulane is an epidemiologist, and they obviously have a need for anthropologists when it comes to this work. And she was interested in working in these two regions. And I said, well, wouldn't it be great if my master's student went down there and explored this? And we could also think about the parallels in our work. So, I mean, I feel like so much of this, my story feels kind of like serendipitous in some ways, but I think they're given the element of climate catastrophe, this work's going to become a lot more relevant in coming years. Unfortunately, you're not wrong. 
So you said you had been applying for R1. So let me transition really quickly to one that you were successful, or I don't know if it was an R1, but you and colleagues at UAB got a $7.1 million NIH grant to fund the Healthy Brain and Child Development Study, which addresses long-term effects of perinatal exposure to opioids. So I wonder if you would like to speak a little to that. It sounds majorly exciting. Yes, majorly exciting and no surprise, a lot of work. (laughs) So this study is really trying to understand environmental exposures on infant cognitive development, broadly speaking, and it begins in pregnancy. And so where my role is in all of this is I am focusing on the pregnancy components of the study, as well as the innovative piece of this study. And one of the innovative pieces of this study is integrating people who are peer support specialists or navigators, so community health worker professions into the study. And so one of the things I did at the end of my doctoral career is I was a program coordinator for a Medicaid-funded community doula program. Community doulas in that setting were traditional health workers, which was a part of their community health worker workforce. And so My job is to create a navigator program for people who are pregnant and into the first five years of life. So we're calling them family navigators, as well as being involved in in the interpretation related to some of the pregnancy stress surveys and biomarker data that we're collecting for the pregnant people who are in the study. It's a very exciting study because it's one of the first longitudinal studies to look at infant cognitive development starting in pregnancy. They have a plan to expand it to 10 years. And I'm most excited about the community health worker element and all of this, to be completely honest, and to see how we can think about them as members of the care team and and people who can become what I call direct entry researchers. So I'm really excited for that. So it seems like you have your hands in lots of interesting projects and lots of different diverse things. And that's absolutely one. No, it's a wonderful thing. And it's great to hear. And it's incredibly impressive. Outside of being a doula, what other sorts of fun things do you fill your life with that help keep you balanced and whole? Oh my gosh. Well, um, let's see. I'm a, I'm a mother of a six-year-old, right? So that is an activity in and of itself is keeping her alive and entertained and, and growing together as a family. Um, so I would say most of my free time is spent at martial arts classes for her. But outside of that, you know, I enjoy being outdoors. We just bought a house not that long ago. And so we're working on doing some experimenting with sustainable agriculture on our property. And I'm a retired athlete, (laughs) kind of. That's what I call myself. And so I like to do anything, any sort of athletic endurance type of stuff when I can, which is very infrequently compared to what it used to be. So those are the ways that I spend my time in addition to trying to learn how to knit, which I'm terrible at. That's a lot of good pandemic uh, tasks to feel like you made progress on without ever feeling the need to become perfect, right? So I think we're all in similar places on that. Is there anything about your your work that we, I mean, there's there's always more, but is there anything you want to say in this first time you're on the podcast to, to let folks know about? Well, I think the only other thing I want to say is I started off talking about how I had maternal stress and doula work in parallel, but I am really interested in intersecting them. And that's what I'm currently pursuing for my own research project is thinking about how to bring those pieces together to understand the impact of doula care as a a mitigator or moderator of maternal stress. So um, stay tuned, I guess, and, and more to come on that front as it develops. Well, this was absolutely wonderful, and I very much enjoyed getting to learn about your excellent work, despite internet issues and me spilling water everywhere. First time during an interview. Um, Holly, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. Take care.